with you. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah, and uh, we're going to f- finish up, I think it's chapter 10. I'll tell you when I get there. Yeah, chapter 10. We're going to start in chapter 10 of Jeremiah and see what the Lord has for us this evening. It says, hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. And do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. One of the things that we see founded in, uh, in Babel and, and beginning in Babylon, much of uh, the foundation of all false religions is going to have its it's starting point at the Tower of Babel, and it's going to grow in Babylon, and it's going to spread around the world. And one of the things that's going to spread around the world is the, the concept of astrology. And uh, this is exactly what the Lord is laying out for us here in this first verse. Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed by the signs of heaven. I have people share with me every once in a while, you know, they'll say, Jackie, I saw my horoscope today and, you know, it was, it was pretty close, you know, pretty close to being right. And, and we'll go look at <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1. Do not be dismayed like the Gentiles and do not, uh, or do not fall away the Gentiles or be dismayed at the signs of heaven. Do the things that the Gentiles do. Let that stuff go. And then he talks about some of the other customs. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. Does that sound familiar to anybody? The customs of the people are futile. One cuts a tree from the forest. This is the birthplace of that tradition we have in Christmas. Christmas tree. Spoken of way back in Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was used for something totally different. You guys remember in the book of Genesis, we were introduced to a character named Nimrod. Nimrod was not a bad thing then. Being a Nimrod today is not so good. But back then, it was kind of a good thing. He was one of the first world leaders and becomes, you know, if you will, a a type of the Antichrist. Someone who the Bible says was mighty, a mighty hunter against the Lord. So Nimrod marries a woman. Her name is Semiramis. And after they're married, um, if I remember my mythology correctly, I believe Nimrod dies. And Semiramis turns up pregnant. And she says that uh, she has been a virgin, though she was married to Nimrod all that time. And now Nimrod, the father, has overshadowed her, and she is going to give birth to Nimrod's son. Nimrod became or came to be looked upon as a god. And her son, being born, his name was Tammuz. Tammuz grows up, becomes a hunter like his father, and in, in a hunting trip is killed by a wild boar. So, to celebrate Tammuz and Semiramis, over time, Semiramis became known as the Queen of Heaven. And Tammuz, as the, the child, um, 
the child which leads to uh, the mother-child cult. The mother-child cult you'll find in just about every civilization uh, on the planet. In Egypt, it's Isis and Horus. In uh, uh, Greek mythology, I think it's Aphrodite and Eros. In, uh, in Rome, it's Venus and Cupid. Um, in Canaanite, it is Ashtoreth and Baal. In case you've ever heard of those two guys. We'll be reading a lot about them as we go through the prophets. Those were the area where the children of Israel stumbled so often. So when it, what they would do is so many other cults of this type, they would, the, the, the legend said that Tammuz died and he was dead for 40 days. And then at the end of 40 days, he came back to life. So every year they would come up to a time celebrating his rebirth they would start that celebration of his rebirth with 40 days where they would give something up in memory of the fact that Tammuz has been dead and he's about to come to life. Might sound familiar to some of you. Um, at the winter solstice, they would, they would celebrate his death. And at his death, they would go out into the forest and cut down an evergreen tree. They would bring the evergreen tree in, symbolizing life. They would bring it in and they would decorate it. Silver and gold they would put on it. And they would put a little cross on its base so that it wouldn't topple. That's what Jeremiah just told us. And they would worship around this tree. They chose the evergreen tree because that symbolized life. That he was going to come back. That Tammuz would not be gone forever. There were also a few... Um, uh, deals where they would bring in a log and they would burn a log all night. It's where the tradition of the Yule log actually came from. They'd burn that log all night and, and uh, just to symbolize his death and again, his coming again. Now, when he would come again was always the springtime. At winter, everything went dormant, everything goes dead, so they, they mourn his death and it's springtime they would celebrate his resurrection. It was celebrated in the festival of Ishtar. Ishtar in, in mythology becomes like, almost like his, I think it's his sister, but acts like his girlfriend. So you know how mythology is, right? Ishtar, uh, the celebration of Ishtar. Tammuz comes back to life. So what they would do in the celebration of Ishtar is they would celebrate by, by giving and and giving folks rabbits and coloring eggs. And they would celebrate that because rabbits and eggs spoke of fertility and coming back to life and the crops coming back to life. And that's how they worship. And that was something that was, was uh, a yearly occurrence in Babylon, spread all around the world. There came a time actually in, in church history when the church moved from being persecuted to being accepted. And when it was accepted, they looked at all their holy days that they had had, that the pagans had had, and their holy days, and they said, you know, we need to take these holy days and we're going we're gonna to Christianize them. So instead of celebrating the death of Tammuz at the winter solstice, we're going to celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th. And instead of celebrating uh, Tammuz's resurrection at, uh, at the, the, the coming uh, of spring, 
We're going to call that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we'll call it Easter instead of Ishtar. And you ever wondered why Easter we had rabbits and eggs and what in the world that ever had to do with Jesus? Didn't have anything to do with them. All those things have their foundation in paganism. That's where they came from. That's how they got into the, into the church. That's how they became accepted. In fact, the high priest of the mystery Babylon religion was called Pontifex Maximus. You ever heard that name before? And so he actually was centered in Babylon until Babylon was conquered. And then Pontifex Maximus was then moved, I wish I could remember, one of the seven cities, uh, the seven churches that Jesus wrote to. I don't, can't remember off the top of my head. And then he was given as a gift to Rome. So on that day, so long ago, when Rome decided that Christianity was going to be okay. They needed a head for the church, and they already had this high priest called Pontifex Maximus for Babylonian mystery Babylon religion. So um, Constantine or whoever was in control at that time, you know, waved his hand over him and said, "Poof, you're the pope." And that's where those things came from. Now, a lot of people get hung up on that. A lot of people all over the place get hung up on it, and they look at it and they say, well, then should we not have a tree, and should we not do all these these other things? And I guess on one hand, I would suggest be fully convinced in your own mind. Study, show yourself approved, see how the Lord is directing you. I'm not trying to, to, to lean upon you one way or the other, but I'll tell you this. There's this little celebration for the Jews that happens around Christmas time called Hanukkah. Hanukkah is an extra biblical legend that at the time of the Maccabean revolt, when Judah Maccabea overcame Antiochus Epiphanes and got back to the temple that Antiochus had cut off from him, they went into the temple to purify the temple. There's blood, pig blood everywhere and all kind of crazy things that Antiochus did. So they go in and they, they clean all that stuff up and they prepare everything and they light the menorah. When they light the menorah, they discover the menorah only has enough oil for one day. And it takes seven days to make another batch. So... It was going to have to stay lit for eight days or it was going to go out. And the light of the menorah was never supposed to go out. It was supposed to burn. So they lit it and the priests went about preparing the next batch of oil. And miraculously, the oil stayed, was preserved. And now for Hanukkah, rather than a seven-branch candlestick like we see in the menorah they have a eight one extra because it was lit one day and it lasted eight and so every day of hanukkah they light another candle on the menorah until the eight days is fulfilled hanukkah that story is written nowhere in the bible no place no place in the bible it's uh it it may actually have occurred i'm not trying to say that it didn't occur but uh it 
was not one of the seven feasts required of a good Jewish boy. Actually, three feasts were required, but it wasn't one of the seven appointed times that God gave the nation of Israel. Everybody with me? But in John chapter 8, who celebrated Hanukkah? Jesus did. In fact, it was after the giant menorah had burned out on the last day that Jesus stood in the sight of that burned out menorah and said, I am the light of the world. So when I consider that, that that's not one of God's appointed feasts, but Jesus celebrated. I don't get hung up on, on Easter. I think it's curious, you know, the reasoning. We all know the day Jesus died and the day he rose. He died on the 14th of Nisan. He rose on the 17th of Nisan, the, the, the first Sunday after the Sabbath after Passover which is where it would always be. Now, because the Jews follow a lunar calendar, Passover moves. It doesn't stay the same. So that's why Ishtar follows a very similar system for Easter. That's why it always moves. But it very seldom lands at the same time as Passover and the, and the, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. So... So anyways, in the, in the Feast of the First Fruits, which would have been Resurrection Sunday. So as we look at it, that's, where, that's how all that stuff came in. But what's going on in here, when we look at the context of Jeremiah, because you look at Jeremiah, he says, well, the Lord says not to learn the ways of the Gentile. Listen to what they were doing. They were worshiping Tammuz. They were worshiping Ashtoreth and Baal. They were following and worshiping those gods. That's why they were doing those things. When we sit down around a Christmas tree, I'm not thanking God for Tammuz. I'm thanking the Lord for sending His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not the same thing. You guys with me? So when you look at this, understand, that's what they were doing. When they brought the tree in and they decorated it, it wasn't to celebrate the Christ, the greatest gift ever given. It was to celebrate false gods. And, you know, God doesn't like that. Because He's the only God. All the rest are false. All the, all the rest should be chucked. So in this first section, uh, Jeremiah 10, 1 through 4, <clears throat> often is called the, the Christmas section of Jeremiah, where he covers the, where we see the Christmas tree coming from. Then he says in verse 5, they are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. So do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do good. So God says, listen, it's like the straw man in Wizard of Oz. They have no brain. They can't do anything. They just sit on a stick wherever you put them. And so, you know, but the people, just like way back in the, when they were going through, as they were going through the wilderness, sometimes I got to get it stuck and I got to get it rolling again. They're going through the wilderness and Moses is up on the mountain and they built a, a golden calf so they had something that they could see to worship. See, all around the world, being able to see what you worship was important, right? If a Jew came to a land and, and the, the guy says, Hey, so tell me about your gods. Oh, my God's a, the God, the Most High. 
And the other guy would say, yeah, we say that about ours too. There's his temple over there. See that big statue? That's our God. Let me see what your God looks like. Maybe I want to switch. Our God commands there's no image, so there's no statue. There's no, at this time at least, there's a temple. But in the temple, no graven image. Nothing for anybody to be able to look at and say, that's God. But here, the Lord is saying, all, that, all those images are empty. They're not real. I'm the real deal. I'm the real thing. And he wants us to place our hope and trust in them. So then, he says, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord. So now Jeremiah, as he receives this word from the Lord, turns to the Lord in, in a spontaneous praise and says, Inasmuch as there is none like you, none like you, that's uh, what the name Micah means, by the way, you are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all the kingdoms there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. So Jeremiah laying it out. So often... You know, the, the question is, I look at Jeremiah that I ask myself, not necessarily what false gods do I have in my life, although we can make that, that parallelism, but the idea is what's in my life is more important than God. What in my life is, am I not willing to give up for the Lord? It's, I look at that thing and I say, Lord, you can have everything, but then you'll know what your idol is. You'll know what it is. So, you know, it's, I think it's an important concept for us to grasp because when the rich young ruler came to Jesus in, in the, the Gospel of Luke and the Lord said to him, he said, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? You know, and, and it's interesting because when God, when, when Jesus had the opportunity, if I have somebody ask me that, I say, well, you confess that you're a sinner. Repent. Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. And you will be saved. But Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the greatest commandment? Oh, I've done these things since my youth. One thing you lack. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. He just introduced the rich young ruler into the thing he trusted more than God. His money. All his faith was in his money. So the Lord said, give all your money up. And he went away sad. He went away disheartened. He went away brokenhearted. Why? Because he was very wealthy, Scripture says. So in our lives, I think that it's true. All those things, you know, that we that we ask the Lord Jesus into our heart, that we confess with our mouth, believe in our heart. All that stuff's good. But we better lay down our idols. And what else is in our life that has become more important than Him? What is holding that top spot? What is, what is taking that place? We want to, we whatever it is, we want to die to it. We want to ask the Lord. You know, if we know we're struggling with something, ask the Lord, God, take this from me. 
Take this desire out of my heart. Take this garbage out of my life. Because whatever it is, I promise you it is a worthless doctrine compared to eternity with Jesus Christ. Verse 9, silver is beaten into plates. It's, it's brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz, the work of the craftsmen or the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. They will not be able to endure. See, God is true. He is living. He is everlasting. I don't care how good all that stuff looks. God is the one thing that matters. And the one thing that He calls for from us. Love. Me. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what God's desire is for each one of us. Jesus says the very same thing. Lord, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these. Love God. We read 1 John, and 1 John tells us, If you love God, you will keep His commandments and they will not be burdensome if you do not keep his commandments you do not love god and we when we look at all that we we recognize in your life my life and our lives that's a hard thing in fact i would say nigh unto impossible for me to love the lord my god with all my heart soul mind and strength apart from his help And where do we receive that help? Romans chapter 5, the Lord says that the love of God is poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pours that love into our heart. Now it's, I have to choose to walk in that love. To accept that gift that God has given me in my life and to now act upon that gift. To do the things that, that God's laid out in my heart to do. I was uh, pretty encouraged this last weekend, Kathy, I shared at the couple study, Kathy was, uh, she went to California to share, uh, teach at a tea, and when she was going, she was at, uh, she flew out of Twin, so she was in uh, Salt Lake, and she started thinking, oh, my message is junk, I need to redo it. If you ever put a message together, you probably felt that way one time or another. So she pulls out her laptop and she's just going to redo this message. I'm just going to redo my message. And at that time, her phone rings. And any of you who know Kathy know, of course, she didn't answer the phone because she couldn't find it or dig it out of her purse in time before it went to voicemail. So it went to voicemail and it goes to voicemail. And, and so she, you know, picks up her phone and checks the, the voicemail. And what's going on? It's a, it's a call from a gal at the church. And it, the gal at the church says, you know, This might sound kind of stupid to you or weird, but just felt impressed on my heart to call you and encourage you and and to let you know, God said, you don't need to change your message. It's perfect. Now, if she'd have just been sitting there doing nothing, maybe she wouldn't have thought much of that. But since she was in the midst of changing everything, you know, all of a sudden it's like, wow, God. 
wow, you mean God still speaks, God still moves, God still directs? But here's, here's the challenge, I think, for us. I think God still does that. I think more often than not, we just tell him, that can't be him. That's dumb. I'm not going to call her and say that. She's going to think I'm a moron. Don't we do stuff like that? And many times, I mean, occasionally you may be right. Maybe it is you, but so what? You know, the more we step out in faith and receive that which, which God is speaking in our ear and we do what God has laid in our hearts to do, we step out in faith, what happens? We're going to grow. We're going to grow closer to Him. We're going to understand His voice. We're going to recognize the, the, the motives of the Lord. We're going to recognize when He's speaking, when He's guiding, when He's leading us. For He is the Lord. He is the true God, the living God, and the everlasting King. Sometimes we forget how great and marvelous the Lord is. So thus you will say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. Now, speaking of God's movement in creation and the expanse of space, when what was common at this time in, in historical literature was ideas like Atlas is holding the earth. Or the earth is being held on the back of a turtle who's walking on the back of a giant elephant who's swimming in a river in the middle of somewhere else. I don't know, all this crazy nonsense. But here you have actually the concept of an expanding space, what we experience in our creation. And then he utters his voice, and there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. And he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. You catch that. They call that the hydrological cycle. That water goes into the heavens in vapor and comes down in rain. The hydrological cycle. It's something that we all should be familiar with. Because that's how the earth is watered. And here, Jeremiah is talking about that. Now, listen, guys, God did tell them, hey, when you're out, I'm not, it's not going to rain. And the common thought when it didn't rain was one of the gods is mad at us. But even in that, they had an understanding of, of how things worked. Where did they gain that understanding? Who's speaking? Jeremiah. Who's giving them the words? God. He's telling them. And so he's sharing. He causes the vapors to descend. The ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings the wind out of his treasury. Everyone is dull hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image. For his molded image is falsehood. And there is no breath in them. You see, he's saying you become just like the God you serve. Now that should encourage us, right? If you're serving God. God Almighty that's what he says. Everyone is dull-hearted and without knowledge. Why? Because the gods they serve are empty-headed with no brains. They can't speak. They can't smell. They can't taste. They can't move. They can't do anything. 
You become like them. That's what the psalmist would declare. It's what Jeremiah declares. They are futile. A work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. But the portion of Jacob is not like them. The portion of Jacob. That means Jacob's inheritance. And what did God call them? When he calls Jacob, who's he talking to? Is he talking to Jacob's dad, right? He's gone. When he says Jacob, he's talking about Israel. But what kind of Israel? You know, Jacob really typifies for you and I a dual nature. You ever been walking in your flesh? Well, then you're like Jacob. And you walk in your spirit? Now you're like Israel. So God, when he says, the portion of Jacob, he's talking about the portion of my people, which is disobedient and manipulators, knuckleheads. He says, their portion's not like that. He's saying, God, their portion, their inheritance. What's their inheritance? Folks, if we think our inheritance is anything else, then like we talked about this morning, if you would take heaven without Jesus in it, there's something wrong. Their portion, their inheritance is almighty God. And so he says, their portion, almighty God, who is their inheritance. He's not like all these idols that can't do anything. What does the scripture call him for? He is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Notice the name change. The portion of Jacob, he's not like that. He's the maker of all things. But Israel is his inheritance, governed by God. Those surrendered to him. The Lord declared, didn't he? Not everyone who calls himself Israel is Israel. Any more than everybody who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. Right? It's more than just words on your lips. And so the same thing, the Lord is laying out here. But listen, I love the fact that it says that, 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 like for you and I as believers, Jesus is our inheritance. He's our portion. That's my portion. And I'm his. And God's the one who says that. They're my inheritance. In the New Testament, the same thing about the church. It's my inheritance. We are his prize. We are what he wins for becoming sin. That, that's pretty mind-boggling to me. That we, you and I, God treasures us to the point that he was willing to become sin so that he might gain just the opportunity for you to choose. I don't think that was a real good part of you. Yeah, I don't think so. I I look at myself in the mirror and I don't think anybody thinks it's a very good bargain. But the fact that that's how he loves us. That's the way he loves us. And when if we can really grasp the the everlasting eternal love of God, then our only response will be to love him. To surrender to his will, to allow his spirit to move in our life. And as much as I would love to say that that occurs instantly. Poof! You fully understand the love of God and you come to a place where you love Him with the kind of love He needs. I just don't see it. 
But as long as we're moving in that direction, drawing near unto the Lord, and not just with our lips, right? Remember what the prophets would lay out. These people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This can't just be talk. We've got to walk the walk, right? First John said, If anyone says he abides, Christ abides in him, he also ought to walk as he walked. Do we bear family resemblance? Do we bear a family resemblance to Jesus Christ? Do we walk as he walked? Do we behave as he behaved? Do we give as he gave? Do we love as he loved? Then for all of us, the answer should be a resounding no. But is that our purpose? Is that why we're here? Is that the reason we're on earth? To, to, to learn, to walk, to be, to, by the power of his spirit... Because if I do it in my flesh, the Bible says it's a clanging symbol and a bunch of garbage. Good for nothing. But if my motivation is love and it's the love of God poured in my heart by the Holy Spirit, then it can be something that we accomplish. But not if God's just something you carry around in your left pocket or you keep on your dashboard. Your dashboard Jesus, you know, to watch over you while you're driving. It needs to be something... That is all of you, all encompassing. Everything, everything that you're about, everything about you. The Lord of hosts is his name. So gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress, for thus says the Lord. So in verse 17, Jeremiah is about to get in a lot of trouble. Jeremiah never is forgiven for this sermon he's about to preach at the temple. And remember, I told you Jeremiah doesn't go chronologically, it's just like a spattering of Jeremiah's teachings and the sermons he gave and the visions he saw and the things God gave him. This one, I think, is called uh, the Temple Sermon, and this one gets him in a lot of trouble because here he is praising God, talking about the glories of God and all this, and then he's going to turn both barrels at the leadership in Israel and pull the trigger. Here's what he says. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it so. That word for throw out is literally a word like catapult, slingshot. The Lord says, I'm going to catapult you out of the land. God told him that way back at the beginning, right? Hey, if you do the same thing the Canaanites did, I'm going to throw you out. So here he says, I'm going to, I'm going to throw you out of the land and they will distress them that it may be so. And then Jeremiah says, because listen, Jeremiah becomes here in a way like a a picture of Christ. He is, Jeremiah knows all this stuff's going on. They're getting thrown out. All these things are happening and he's going to stay with his people. And he's going to be crushed just like they are. He's going to lose just like they do because it's his people. He doesn't ever leave them. So first we see him being crushed physically. Look at verse 19. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe. But I say truly this is an infirmity and I must bear it. Jeremiah speaking of being crushed first in in a physical sense being wounded in his body then in verse 20 his his home 
is going to be crushed. Look, my tent is plundered and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. Now we know Jeremiah never married nor had children. But most commentators, when they look at this, Jeremiah considered the nation and the people around him his kids. He says, my, my children are no more. They're going to die. They're going to be destroyed because they wouldn't listen to the word. All they had to do was lay down their arms and go. And it would have been peace. But they wouldn't. The false prophet said, we got to fight. We got to fight. We got to do what we got to do. You know, come on. Don't you know God helps those who help themselves? And in the flesh, can anyone please God? No. And so their destruction comes upon them. So he's crushed physically and he's crushed by the, by the loss of his, his, of his home. His home is destroyed. And then verse 21, socially the nation is, is bankrupt for the shepherds have become dull hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they will not prosper and the flock will be scattered. Because the shepherds wouldn't listen. They didn't seek the Lord. They weren't listening to his voice. There's a guy named Rodney Clapp who wrote a book called uh, Families at the Crossroads. And this is what he writes. We live in a society in which the common Western framework of values about marriage, divorce, acceptable popular entertainment, and so forth is broken down. As a result, the post-modern world is a fragmented world, more and more populated with isolated and drifting individuals. In plain English, in our world, the shepherds aren't seeking the Lord and everything's falling apart. And more and more they're discovering individuals scattered, strewn, moved about, drifting with the wind. Behold, the noise of the report has come and a great commotion out of the north country. That's from whence Babylon will come to make the cities of Judah desolate. A den of jackals. They're literally going to be left utterly destroyed, completely empty. While I was considering this, and as as we see Jeremiah's voice is going to turn. Actually, let's look at it real quick, and then I'll I'll tell you about Mr. Zingley. But, uh, oh Lord, he says, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Man doesn't know what he's doing. And he is not able to make the right decisions on his own. So Zwingli, we, we read about, he wrote a poem when he had the plague. And I, I stumbled across this poem today. And, and I thought it was, it was pretty neat to me, his heart. Uh, that he expresses to God in this poem. He thinks he's going to die. He's got the plague, you know, people dying all over the place. So, so he's pretty sure he's going to go. Here's what he says in his, in his poem. Help, Lord God. Help in this trouble. 
I think death is at the door, for thou hast overcome him. So to thee I cry, If it is thy will, take out the dart which wounds me, nor lets me have an hour's rest or repose. Take away that which is making me sick and keeps me from resting. But willest thou, however, that death take me in the midst of my days? So be it. Do what thou wilt. For thy vessel am I to make or to break altogether. Swingley says he's praying for healing, but he says, Lord, if, if your will is that I die, then I die. For I am yours either to make or to break. And I wonder, when, as I read that, I'm, I'm wondering, can I say that? Would I say to the Lord, have we reached that place of surrender in our life where we say, Lord, hey, make or break, I'm yours. Whether you want to make me or whether you want to break me, whether you're going to heal, whether you're going to take me, whatever you're going to do, I'm yours and I only want what you want. And that's how... Zwingli was was praying as he came to this period in his life. And it emphasizes that concept that we don't know within ourselves how anything needs to turn out. So we need to trust in God to direct our steps. Verse 24, he says, O Lord, correct me, but with justice. Now that phrase in Hebrew means to collect, collect, means to correct me with mercy, a corrective justice, like being chastised, like a discipline for your child. But not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. That phrase, not in your anger, speaks of the righteous determination to punish sin. Don't do unto me what I deserve. Do unto me what I don't deserve. Or, in other words, Lord... Give me grace and mercy rather than judgment. He needed that grace and mercy in his life, even as we do. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name. And it always cracks me up how in the Old Testament especially, this is how they would often pray. You know, I want grace, but just bust the teeth out of that other dude. Just give it to him, Lord. Get him. You know, like, if I could focus God's attention on that guy, I might escape. <clears throat> and I think there's, there's a little bit of that concept in with this. For he says, they have eaten up Jacob, devoured and consumed him, and made his dwelling place desolate but hebrews chapter 12 it tells us not to despise the chastening of the lord not to despise what it is that god is wanting to do how he's wanting to work in our life and and i think we that's the whole point of what jeremiah is saying here chastise me discipline me do what you need to do in my life 
It's not mine to know what I'm doing or where I'm going. So, Lord, I trust you. Discipline me. Bring judgment on sinners, and God will bring judgment on sinners. It will, God is righteous and holy. Judgment will come. Bring judgment on the sinners, but grace on those who call upon your name. And that's the attitude of Jeremiah as he wraps up the speech for which he will be hated by most of his countrymen for the rest of his ministry. So as we take a look at that, the challenge to me is, you know, again, just fully surrendering, being utterly given over to the Lord. We're going to close out tonight with a time of prayer like we do often on Sunday night. But I want to encourage you tonight. One of the things that, that we purposed in our hearts as we did this was an opportunity also to minister in the gifts of the Spirit. So if you have a word, we would invite you to bring it. If you uh, have an utterance, we would invite you to speak it. If you have the interpretation, we would invite you to use it. If you have a prayer, we would invite you to pray it. It's just a time for us to just really focus in on the Lord. So I would encourage you to, to uh, take opportunity. God's laying something on your heart. If God's moving, if you feel His Spirit leading, I would encourage you uh, to allow that manifestation to occur. This is the perfect place and time for such a thing. We're gathered together as a body of believers. And I know every one of you. So I think we're pretty square. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you and we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would move in this place. God, we pray that you would, uh, Father, where two or three are gathered, your word declares, there you are in our midst. Lord Jesus, we pray, Father, that you would be gathered together with us. Lord, that we would have a heart tuned toward you. Lord, that we would be willing to step out in obedience to what your spirit is speaking in our heart, what you're laying uh, in our hands. Lord, we pray, God, that you would move. Lord, we pray for just the, the body, the church. Lord, we pray for that outpouring of your spirit, even as in the day of Pentecost. Lord, that you would change us from the inside out, that we might be witnesses to you in all we do. And we give you all the praise and the glory, Lord Jesus, as we come before you now, in Jesus' name, amen.